0: Esther chapter 2, 502, thank you very much. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king and he followed it. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa, a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, along with those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Hegai, who had charge of the harem. She pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned her to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked to and fro near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go there, and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, She asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favour and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of the Annals in the presence of the King.
1: Thanks Alistair and thanks Sam and the band for leading us and good evening everybody. Great to be sharing a few thoughts from Esther with you. If you're visiting let me introduce myself. I'm Ken Benjamin. I'm one of the ministers here. But I'm away half of the time at the moment, so just a little summary. I was away last weekend with Sue and for eight or nine days or so uh, serving churches beyond our church, our our denomination, and um, also uh, a little bit wider as well. So we were doing a conference for centers like CYE, the Activity Center, all the different retreat centers and conference centers and activity centers who are Christian meet together, and we did a conference for them. Great to do that. We were keen to do that because we believe in what they do. And we also believe in and want to pray for good outcomes for the staff and volunteers of places like that at the end of it. So it was good to do that. And then we did something around churches around Northampton in the kind of old shoe building area of factories, all that sort of area of Northampton. Uh, Good to be there. And then we were doing a couple of seminars had a conference called Fresh Streams, which is a Baptist conference for about 400 leaders with a kind of emphasis on Word and Spirit uh, together, a bit like New Wine if you're familiar with that, but kind of for for Baptist leaders. So it was great to do all of that. Thank you if you've been praying. If you haven't been praying, don't worry. Other people were, and we were blessed. And it's good to be here now. And it's so as I was saying, I can't tell you how much I was looking forward to sharing with Esther. Literally can't tell you. We had no microphone to do it with. But thanks guys for getting us back on track. Um, With that, I've always loved the book of Esther for a number of reasons, not least because it stars two people from the family of Benjamin. I've always liked that. Mordecai and Esther are both Benjamins. I have also always, and I've shared this before, I think in a morning service, historically misunderstood the the book of Esther, but it made sense to me. So as a teenager, I remember thinking, I was already a believer. I'm I'm just going to read through the Bible. I don't need a commentary. I'm just going to read through. So I remember making my way through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so on. I remember Chronicles being quite of a hard slog. And then when you get to the book of Esther, I quite liked the fact that there's um, a couple of Benjamins starring in it. That's good. And I remember, by the time you get to chapter five, misunderstanding something, but it made sense to me at the time. So I'm a teenager reading chapter five, and it says, the king couldn't sleep. So he asked for the book of Chronicles to be read to him. And I remember thinking, "Yep, yeah, I get that. That I understand that. I haven't understood everything I've read so far, but I understand that. And I've since learned that I wasn't understanding it, that, it, that Chronicles just means the accounts of the kings This is a king in Persia, so it's not our chronicles in the Bible. It's an account of the kings of Persia, and it's an account of his kings, including the events that happened in chapter 2, actually. But I didn't know that at the time, and misunderstanding it, it made sense to me. It's a great book for us to be spending a bit of time on. Roger gave a great summary last week, and one of the things that he said in his summary was that feasting and particularly banquets form some of the marker points for the book as you make your way through it and that's absolutely true you can look at the two banquets at the beginning you can look at this banquet that happens now when the queen is appointed you can look at Esther's banquet when she's got a rescue plan in mind and you can look at the banquet right at the very end of the book which which is still one of the five Jewish festivals that takes place every year the festival of Purim so they mark the the different marker points in the book as well I put a kind of jail scene not terribly clear on the right hand side because the other marker point is laws Persians are known for laws and the word edict appears in Esther far more times than anywhere else in the Bible and it's all about making laws so there are laws that women must obey their husbands in chapter 1 there's a law that all the beautiful women must be presented to the king there's a law threatening God's people that happens. Then there's a law ultimately rescuing God's people, and then there's a law that God's people can um, worship freely, and then and so on and so on. So look out for those as we make our way through it. They also provide really helpful marker points, deliberate marker points, I think, to help us navigate our way through it. In chapter two, then, what you've got is a queen is appointed. There's a great banquet feasting that, of course, and to celebrate that, Esther's feast. And along the way, a plot to kill the king is foiled. Uh, But the thing that really interests me, I think, is that within it all is this long game timing for God's plan and for God's plan to play out. God, who doesn't get any specific mention in the book of Esther, as Roger said, is nevertheless in charge and is arranging things in such a way that people at the time wouldn't understand them until afterwards. Such a way that at the end, people will be in the right place at the right time. And of course, God still does that today. He arranges things in such a way that we're in the right place at the right time. And so often we don't know why until the time comes up. I was thinking about cricket to illustrate this. I don't know if anyone is as old or older than me and can name who this is? Anyone name? Malcolm Marshall. Marshall. Absolutely. Now, in these... Late 70s, 80s, the West Indies were the threatening team. They had always had four really fast bowlers. And the most famous of all of them, I think, was Malcolm Marshall at the time. He was super threatening at a time when people didn't have helmets. And he would deliberately go for the body as well. And then he'd, he'd won before he ever went for the wicket because he was so intimidating and so fast in his action. His speed still compare very, very favourably with any of the cricket going on even today with... Um, England doing well against South Africa. But I remember when Malcolm Marshall was getting very close to uh, retiring and he came over with the West Indies for, I think, the last time to play against England. There were some other people coming up who were still going to be really fast for the West Indies, Um, Ambrose and and others, and a couple of Benjamins as well. There was a Winston Benjamin and a Kenny Benjamin who played for the West Indies. Um, When you Google Kenny Benjamin, you don't get me, you get the West Indies cricketer. But I remember Malcolm Marshall still, still kind of treated as the senior bowler but no longer with the same speed that he had and I remember him taking ages in this test match to set the field and the captain would set the field and then Malcolm Marshall would move a fielder from like here to like here and he would do that with each of the field before he would bowl he would do it several times in an over and it was test taking forever and the commentators would comment what's the point of a fielder being there?" to there you know he cannot be that accurate and then of course the inevitable happens and Malcolm Marshall bowls this ball that doesn't have the pace of his earlier years and the ball flies in the air and lands straight into the hands without needing to move of one of the fielders he's moved you know not from there to there and it falls perfectly and you're left with the question did he do that from knowledge was it just all of those years? Was he able to kind of bowl a ball knowing that player, knowing this pitch, knowing that the field, that it wasn't going to be as fast as it was, but he might land there, not there? I think there's a fair chance he did know that. But even if that was luck, and he didn't look like it to me, even if that was luck, that isn't what God does. God arranges us in such a way that we're in the right place at the right time, even when we don't know it. And it's not coincidence, it's knowledge. I'm convinced that God does that for us in a whole variety of different ways. That becomes key as you look through the book of Esther. So in chapter two, according to divine providence, I'm going to say, Esther was chosen to be the queen in the the place of Queen Vashti that Roger mentioned last week, the previous queen. We can miss how, how long these details take. I think. Now, I'm hoping I'm not the only one who does this. Alistair read this passage wonderfully to us and he even picked out the kind of humour he, he portrayed in it well, wonderfully and brilliantly. But I'm hoping I'm not the only one who, who takes into account some bits of a passage in more detail in my head. I'm not, I don't do this deliberately than other bits. So some bits just kind of swim by me and I just don't take them into account and other bits do. So particularly bits of geography, I know some of you love that and you'd want a map and this is where Persia is and Roger explained all of that and he explained it without a map but some of you would have wanted it. But also dates are like that for me. So I know roughly where this is in the history of the Old Testament. I know that God's people have been exiled, they're allowed back but for whatever reason they haven't all gone back. And so people like Um, Esther and Mordecai they haven't gone back that's as much as I want to know so when it says this is in the blank year of king blank of blank I don't register that doesn't register in my head now if you do then you will have noticed something that I haven't noticed all these years reading that which is that it takes just a very long time from Vashti to be deposed to Esther to get her position you see so back in chapter 1, it says, in my head, the, in the blank year of King Blank of Blank, but actually in verse one, chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia, the princes and the no- nobles and the provinces were present. That's when it all goes wrong for the previous queen. And then chapter 2 and verse 16, Alistair read this, this Jewish girl, Esther, who's made queen in chapter two, in the seventh year of the king's reign. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. So like, there's there's three and a half, four years. We know it can take a year for the whole kind of beauty pageant contest thing to take place. But there's three and a half years between chapter one and chapter two. And I lose that in the fact that it just says later at the start of chapter two, and I just think that's a little bit later, and it all progresses quite quickly. Obviously not. You look this up in history, Roger mentioned this as well last last week, a history outside of the Bible, and it looks very possible that the king of Persia is involved in a war in between that doesn't go well for him. Hence, he can't be in a position to be thinking, oh, I'd quite like to do a beauty contest now for who could be my next queen. He's busy in a battle with the Greeks. He suffered a great defeat, he comes back discouraged and then this plan happens with a whole bunch of other people vying for this contest. Again, another historian, Josephus, says that there were 400 women selected, shortlisted for this competition. So let's say that that might be right. And, then, and this isn't like a panel of judges. This isn't some X-factor thing where there's three. This is all down to the king who's going to make this decision alone, apart from maybe there's like a prior round with his eunuch. If you don't get past the eunuch, you don't get to boot camp, maybe is what it might be like. Except for it's not beautiful, it's brutal. The chances are slim for an unknown and orphaned Jewish girl to beat 400 other girls in the position of the Queen of Persia. Now, if we accept that what's going to happen is Esther is absolutely going to be in the right place at the right time, my question is, would that have happened three years earlier? Now, we simply don't know, but I think there's a fair chance it wouldn't have been. We know that the people who are likely to be picked for this sort of thing are going to be really young to be picked for this beautiful, you know, untouched bride, as they would see it, for the king. So maybe three years earlier, she's not going to win this competition. Maybe she looks too young. Maybe somebody else might be more in, in line for it. But God has all of these things in plan and puts things in the right place at the right time. And Mordecai too. He then, because he's at the gate, because it's three years later, witnesses this thing that saves the king's life. So you don't pass go if you don't pass the first round of screening with the king's eunuch. She does that. This girl pleased this woman, pleased in one favour with everybody. Immediately the eunuch provides her with beauty treatments and special food. She takes every bit of advice that he gives. Good advice can come from surprising places and it does that for her. When her turn came, and it may have taken a long time, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai suggests. You can picture people coming from all around the kingdom with their best clothes, with their best jewellery, with their best idea locally of what might fit. Um, And and this person, Haggai, knows what the king likes and she takes his advice. The way she holds herself and conducts herself pleases people. She's not just beautiful in look, she's beautiful in character. And now the king is attracted to her more than any other woman. And she won his favour and approval more than any of the others. <clears throat> so he sets a royal crown on her head and makes her queen instead of Vashti. So she becomes queen, and that becomes important and significant. And she's in that role before there's any threat to God's people in terms of a threat of annihilation. But there must all, almost certainly still be some latent disregard downplaying of the Jewish people for Mordecai to say, don't say who you're from, don't say your family background. So she doesn't do that. The next image we have is one of a city gate. And a city gate is a gathering place. It's a place where people meet and have all sorts of discussions. Mordecai, who hasn't given away who he is, and Esther hasn't given away who he is, is one of the people. There'd be lots having trading and discussions at the city gate. And Mordecai is there and he hears a conspiracy to kill the king. He reported it to Esther, who in turn reports it to her husband um, in the name of her cousin, who's, which is what Mordecai is, a kind of older cousin who brings her up as, as, he, as though he's the parent because she's orphaned. And when investigation is made and found to be true, the two men were executed. And the relevance of these things is not yet known. But here's the thing then, you see, there's, there's like field placement like a cricketer would do for the right things to come there's the idea that you don't need to know the plan just yet to do the right thing in front of you so, so it is the right thing to do to bring up a younger cousin who's lost her parents well and Mordecai does that, it is the right thing to do to treat people well and find favour and Esther does that, it is the right thing to do to show loyalty to this king I think and Mordecai does that too I'm convinced that God still does this thing where we don't always know exactly what's going on, but he arranges things, even things that aren't necessarily good things in such a way that the right thing will happen at the right time. God will arrange it in such a way. I took this picture from behind the sound desk um, this morning just as an example of this. It's hard to read um, because of brass plaque and uh, shiny lights on it, but towards... The cost of this building, £3,425, was generously made available by Lake Road Baptist Church Portsmouth from war damage compensation for their own church totally destroyed in 1941. And I was just thinking then um, about how God arranged things in the history of our church such that the right things were in the right place to get a confirmation at the time that our church needed it and knew it. So the founders of our church, there were about 20 of them, Who thought it'd be just good to have a Baptist church in in the city? There wasn't one um, at the time. They were looking for some confirmation and they were looking for enough funds to build a church here. They'd already been gathering for a while, uh, but not in a building. Um, And when I started in in this church, there were three of the founding members uh, still around. So you can read this in the history of our church, which is on our website, but I also heard it from the horse's mouth, as it were, from somebody who was in this meeting. One of the deacons had um, lost one of his limbs in the war, in the Second World War, and he lived over in the Witterings. And so sometimes the deacons would meet in his house, not often, but sometimes, just to make it easier for him. Now, this is you'll find it's hard to kind of get the history of it if you're a younger generation person. But he was also pretty much, there might have been two, but pretty much the only deacon with a phone. Now, I'm not talking about mobile phone there. I'm talking about landline phone. He's one of the only deacons with a phone. So they're meeting at his house so he doesn't have to do the transport thing. And they're meeting, praying for guidance. And at the time that they meet, they get the phone call from the area minister. Um, the area superintendent he was called then, to tell them that they're going to receive what was a massive chunk of the cost of this new build, this hall that's out there and the south hall out the back and the main entrance out there, £3,425. If they'd been meeting anywhere else, they wouldn't have heard it. The the Portsmouth Church didn't need it because they decided to form another way and they got other funds, I think, and they joined together with another church, I think is what happened. So... Um, They took this as this confirmation that it was exactly the confirmation they were seeking as they gathered to pray and that it was a massive chunk forward at a time when they were not 100% sure they could go forward. Put all that together and it's a bunch of things that aren't necessarily good things. It's not good that this guy's lost his leg in the war. It's not good that there's a war. It's not good that the Portsmouth Church has been bombed. It's not good that it's taken that many years to do anything with the funds of relief from that, from 41 to 58. Or even 45 to 58, if we give some grace that they wouldn't have done it while the war is on. It still takes a long time to get all of that together. And yet at the right time, all of those things do come together and God uses it. How is this true for us in our lives? I was thinking of Peter, who doesn't want to get involved in the washing of Jesus' feet, And Jesus says, you do not understand what I'm doing now, but you will understand later. There's a bit of that, surely. Or Paul, in Ephesians 2 and and verse 10, saying, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance, in advance for us to do. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 7, we live by faith and not by sight. Some translations say we walk by faith and not by sight. So similarly to sitting at the, at the king's gate and falling in this plot, or just being uh, given the appointment to, co- to be the queen, not yet coming to center stage for the role that she's going to play. These two people, these two Benjamins, are positioned in a way that God is going to use them. Mordecai isn't a bit part player in the book. He gets slightly more mentioned than Esther um, when you you count it up. What if it's like that way for all of us? Is that Life is this kind of stage and God arranges things in such a way that he shapes things um, for us. He schedules us to come in and he schedules certain places for us to be <clears throat> and he schedules certain roles for us to play and to do his script. In that sense, we're, we're the cast uh, for him in the big human drama that God has in mind for us. We have our parts to play and we make our appearance, but we're not the director. He's the director. And we do our routine, but it's more than reading lines. We're given a character, the character of Christ to live out, and then... He makes all of it work. In all of that, I'm left with the question, how do you know, then, if you're in the right place at any given moment? How do you know if you're in the right place in order for God to do all this wonderful thing where it all comes together, people are in the right field positions and they can do exactly what God has called them to do? And I have a couple of answers to that. One is sometimes you do know. Sometimes you have some guidance, you have some confirmations, you have a real sense that you are in the right place at the right time. And sometimes you don't know. And at this point in the book of Esther, I don't think particularly Esther or Mordecai probably know. They've been commanded by law that they have to be in the place that they're in. Sometimes you don't know, and your role then is to simply do the thing in front of you well, to represent God well. And when you do the thing in front of you well, then God does guide as we go. He guides as we walk, as that translation um, also says. He guides as we move. We don't need to know the whole plan. We just need to do the thing in front of us. So, to close and to think about how this might affect us and how we might um, pray and work out the implications for us. We're in a season of needing God's guidance. You are and we are, actually. You're in a season of needing God's guidance for the next shape going forward. But we can believe, can't we, that God is already arranging things in, in ways we don't know for that to happen. And we'll give him all the glory when we do look back and see that that's the case. Sue and I are in a position of needing some guidance too. We know what we're going to do, some of it, but we have no idea where we're going to do it from and where we're going to live, and we'd like a bit of guidance about that. But at the, at the moment, you just do the thing in front of you well, as well as you can, and God guides us in that. So here's some things we could pray about. If you are finding and facing times of trouble right now, if life is messy... Then be assured of this it was messy in Esther's time it's probably pretty brutal that whole whole process rather than beautiful but God rules and he is sovereign so there's an assurance to be had in this there's also a commitment thing to be had God is at work in our lives and in our situations he watches over us and he's working with us so we can commit our situations to him because he's in control And there's also simply that last point, that wherever we are right now, we are where we are. He'll guide us as we go, but he guides us as we move, I think, more than when we just sit still. So for today and for tomorrow, we can pray about doing the thing in front of us well. Invite the band back, and uh, we're going to sing, and then Andy's going to lead us in praying through some of those things. So be thinking about which things apply to you right now. In the middle of trouble, in the middle of a messy situation, in the middle of where we can't see the plan, God rules and he's sovereign. The idea of committing our situations and our places to him, trusting that he knows everything we're facing, not just for today but for the days to come. Uh, We trust his guidance. We seek his guidance as we go. And then thirdly, that simple thing of We don't always need to know the plan. We just need to know that that we're going to do the thing in front of us well and ask him to guide us as we go.